Father, as we open up Your Word again, we ask for Your Spirit to teach us and Your Spirit to inspire us, Lord, to breathe into us the truth, to encourage, Father, those who are discouraged and to to bind up the wounded and brokenhearted. Lord, to, to challenge the comfortable and comfort those who are hurting. And especially, Lord, to help us to see You. Father, we do look forward to the time, the day when we go up to be with You. In Jesus' name, Amen. In the grand finale of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, a book called The Last Battle, the last couple of chapters are fantastic as Lewis gives kind of a, a fantasy version of what it would be like just to be going up into heaven. The second to last chapter is called Farther Up and Farther In. The whole idea is that they're, they're running and they're making their way up mountainsides, even up waterfalls and up hills. And the higher they get, the more energized they are. They don't get tired on this run. And there's a line in the book where Lewis says, if, if one could run without getting tired, I don't think one would often want to do anything else. And amen to that. The whole thrill, the invigoration of running, if you could have that without the exhaustion and without the sore muscles and without the achiness. And there's something to that in the run of our faith that the longer we run with the Lord, the less tired our faith gets. The more strengthened we are in that run. We are right now in the home stretch of the Psalms. Uh, finally there. Psalm 120, I realize there's 150 Psalms, but the last 30 are, are a sprint to the end. Doesn't mean we're going to rush through them. But there's a run that goes on here. In fact, from this point forward, it is an uphill run. It, it goes uphill as though we're racing, as in Lewis's book, up the mountains, up waterfalls, up cliffs, farther up and, and further in to the kingdom as the Psalms lead forward in this. And if you've read from this point to the end of the Psalms, you see this. It's this crescendo as the Word of God leads us into the worship of God. And it's absolutely marvelous. We go up and up and up in glorious praise in this book of praises. Now the next 15 Psalms, Psalm 120 through 134, they were sung by the children of Israel as they went up. These are songs about going up, up to Jerusalem. And they would go up for their feasts and festivals singing these songs. Now it's been said, and you've heard this if you've been here any amount of time, that no matter where you come from, you always go up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, that that high spot there in Israel, that high elevation, beautiful in elevation, the psalmist wrote, Psalm 48, verse 2, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. And Jerusalem does rest up there, beautiful in elevation, 2,500 plus feet, about 2,550 above sea level, nestled in the hills of, of Mount Moriah and Mount of Olives and Zion and Scopus, there with some valleys in between. It's a marvelous place, a beautiful place. And three times a year, the children of Israel, the people of Israel, went up. They were required to. In the spring, they went up for Pesach, or Passover. And in the summer, for Shavuot, that is, that is the Feast of Pentecost. And in the fall, they went up again for Sukkot, that is, Tabernacles. Now, there were other feasts and festivals as well, but those three were required by the Lord. At least every male of Israel had to go up to Jerusalem for those three feasts. I guess the Lord knew if the males went, they'd probably drag along their wives and kids as well, so everyone would be there. 
And I've shared before, Josephus the historian tells us that at these feasts and festivals, there were times where upwards of two million people crowded into Jerusalem. Just packed into the holy city. And as they went up, they sang. But they didn't sing, she'll be coming around the mountain when she comes. They didn't sing, take me home, country roads, or 100 bottles of beer on the wall. They sang the Psalms of Ascent. The next, the next 15 here in this series are all the Psalms of Ascent. The Hebrew word is ma'alah. It also is translated degrees. It's translated steps or stairs, ma'alah, because you ascend as you're going up steps. But it also means what ascends or what rises to the mind. What comes to the mind. And so it's a perfect word for these Psalms of Ascent. They were sung for the joyful upward journey to Jerusalem where the families and the people as they were going up were called to think about where they were headed. To prepare their minds and their hearts for what was about to take place in the feast. And to think about what the feast was about. And to think about their place with the Lord and their relationship with the Lord. And so they would sing these songs as they went up. Ma'alah, ascending, or going up by degree to Jerusalem. If you've been there, you've seen the southern steps. I've mentioned this before. I think it's a fascinating work of, of, uh, of building. That the southern steps of the temple are all of varying degrees. They're, they're not precisely the same as you walk up. As steps are supposed to be. You know, they are. If you built your own house, they're supposed to be the same height going up. So you're not tripping. Southern steps of the temple are all of varying ma'ala, varying degrees, because the worshiper was supposed to think about where he was going. You'd have to stop and pay attention to each step as you went up to the temple. That's the idea behind these psalms, to think about where you're going as you ascend. And so tonight, truly, the psalms of ascent are the beginning of the end of the psalms. And as we begin to ascend, we run And let's keep a keen eye on exactly where we're headed in these psalms. They're laid out, interestingly, chronologically by ascent. As I believe you'll see, there's a pattern here of ascending as you go through the singing of these psalms. Let's begin in Psalm 120, verse 1. In my trouble I cried to the Lord and He answered me. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips, or from those literally with lying lips. Or from those with a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? Sharp arrows of the warrior with the burning coals of the broom tree. Oh, woe is me, he writes, for I sojourn in Meshech. For I dwell among the tents of Kedar. And too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Now again, there's a a chronological layout to the ascent. But you might think in reading Psalm 120, boy, that's a little odd for a starter psalm. He's crying out. People obviously are giving him a lashing with the tongue. There's deceit and there's lies and it's hard for him. And, And there are people who are warring against him even though he's looking for peace. How does that have to do with ascending? Well, let me ask you this. Do you ever feel the way the psalmist just described do you ever find yourself just being tired of the deceit? And just worn out by the lies and the people who are, who are speaking contention. 
And those who are calling for war, even as you're trying to make peace, does that ever just wear you out? Verse 6, he says, Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. You know what happens when you've been dwelling in a place like that too long? You move. You get up and move. Or, or you're overcome. And what the psalmist is doing and why the Lord, I believe, chose for this to be here, the first of the Psalms of Ascent, was this is motivational. Look at where I am. Look at what life is like down here. I've got to go up to the house of the Lord. I need to ascend. I've got to get out of here. You know, it's interesting. Verse 6 again says, Too long has my soul had its dwelling with those who hate peace. Isn't it ironic that, and I may get in trouble here, but so many anti-war activists tend to be uh, pretty in-your-face and angry and sometimes even violent? I don't get that. If you're anti-war, you should be anti-war across the board. And yet how many you see on street corners and you see when there are protests in downtown Seattle and panes of glass are broken and trash cans are scattered around and people are, are angry and shaking fists and, and I think, well, that's, that's a good move for peace. You see, the deal is that war is not the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. The problem is much deeper than the behavior, the outcome. That The problem itself, well, James tells us in James chapter 4, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? We all got war going on in here. No wonder it goes on out there. We've got warring in our very bodies. He says you lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. Or you're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that's where war comes from. The lust, the sin within us, but also the fact that people want to, want to be a friend of the world. And when you focus on being a friend of the world, you make yourself, James says, an enemy of God. Now the Jewish people, in singing this song, this is a people who, they have a word for peace, you know it, shalom. And it's a people who have longed for peace. So long have they wished for peace, desired peace, wanted to have peace, truly since Solomon's days. When the kingdom split under Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam in the north, peace was lost and was never again regained. Not completely, not like it was under David at the end of his reign or Solomon during his years. Peace, shalom. Can't we just have peace? And yet this people who at their very core desire nothing but peace are some of the most attacked people in all history. In fact, they are the most. There's always war in the Middle East. You know this. You can't turn on the news without seeing something going on between Israel and the Palestinians or Israel and Lebanon or or Israel and Syria. There's always this this unrest, this war, this, this problem. Why is that? Well, there's more than one reason, but simply put, friendship with the world is hostility to God. Note this, there are two locations mentioned in this opening psalm. Meshech and Kedar. Meshech is a location to the far north. A location of people who are antagonistic toward the people of God, toward Israel. Meshech, you might notice, is often associated in the scripture with 
names like Tubal or Rosh or Magog. Now Meshach speaks of, well, today, modern day, Turkey and Russia. Even more Russia than, than Turkey. Those to the far north who are against Israel, set against Israel. Kedar is to the south. Kedar was also a region hostile to Israel. In fact, everyone was. You know, the only thing that wasn't hostile to them that bordered them was the Mediterranean Sea. But you had to the north enemies, to the south enemies. You had to the west, the sea, you had to the east. More enemies. All those set against Israel. Now, this is interesting to me. Meshach, the word in the Hebrew, means drawing out. Drawing out. Meshach was to the north. And the psalmist says, My sojourn, or I sojourn in Meshach. I sojourn in the place of drawing out. Drawing out. It reminds me of the tribe of Dan. You know, when God gave all the tribes their inheritances there in the land, when they came in and they got settled, originally the Lord sandwiched the tribe of Dan down in the heart of Israel. In fact, they were there between Ephraim to the north and Judah to the south and Benjamin to the east and the sea to the west. Dan was in a secure location and actually a beautiful location. But they weren't content. They wanted their own region. This is what God gave them, probably knowing this was the best place for them to be at the heart of Israel. But they said, no, no, we want to go up to the north. And so they went up to the north and Dan, you know, would be the first tribe to be taken into Assyrian captivity. Drawing out. Dan was drawn out of that secure place right at the heart of the nation. Drawn out to the place up north because, oh, it looked more fruitful to them. There were more trees. There were more water, water flowing and, and the river up there, the Jordan. So they went up and they were drawn out, pulled to the north and taken into idolatry and finally captivity. The psalmist says, I sojourn in this antagonistic place that's, that's drawing me out, pulling me away. And I think, wow, that's like our lives. You know, many of us have, have jobs or have relationships that it's hard because when you're in those situations, it feels like it's just pulling you away from the Lord, drawing you out from the place your heart really wants to be. And the psalmist says, I'm sojourning there and I don't like it. I, I, I don't want to be here. In essence, again, I want to go up. I need to be out of this place. Kedar. Kedar was the second son of Ishmael. And Kedar was that region to, the, region to the south. And the name literally means dark or mourning, as in mourning over a lost loved one, or mourning at a funeral, sorrow. Kedar, the place of darkness and sorrow. And the psalmist says, I'm there. I'm either being drawn out or I'm in the place of sorrow. These places, too long as my soul had its dwelling here with those who hate peace. These are dark days that the psalmist is describing, dark locations, difficult times that he's living in. And I think, yeah, I can relate. There are times I just can't wait to get to the barn. I just can't wait to be here with you all. I I can't wait for the opportunity to worship, to open up the Word together, just to see a few of you in fellowship. Because out there it's getting dark. It's getting dark. Verse 7, he says, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And if that doesn't sound like Israel today, I'm not sure what does. Constantly saying, we want peace, and yet war is always offered. And it's been said, and I absolutely believe this, if the Palestinians laid down their weapons, there would be no more war. 
But if the Israelis laid down their weapons, there would be no more Israel. And recognizing this, there, there has to be this constant stance of defensiveness, even though the desire is for peace. And if you go to Israel, if you go with us next year, ask them. Talk to some of the Jewish people. What do you want more than anything else for your nation? And by and large, what you'll hear is that answer. Shalom. We just want peace. We're willing to do just about anything just to get peace. But as I said a moment ago, war is not the problem. It's the, it's, it's the symptom of the problem. And the problem is whether internationally or nationally or locally or even personally, we cannot and will not find peace in the world. Israel, even today, is fighting a losing battle. Whether on the battlefield or in the halls of the politicians, they're not going to find peace. (laughs) We know that biblically. Because we know looking ahead prophetically, that ain't going to happen until Jesus comes and makes it happen for Israel. They're not going to find peace. Not real peace. The war of the world, gang, is against all things God. And we need to just be awake to that reality. As we saw this week in Olympia. And we had some ladies drive down there. Some of our crazy ladies from the bridge head down there to be part of this. Go, sister. And, uh, and they went down to see what was going on. You know, we talked about this. The, the, the two bills that are before the House and the, and the Senate there in Olympia. HB 1366 and SB 5274 presented. And these are bills that would severely restrict and regulate the function, check this out, of non-governmental, faith-based, non-profit pregnancy care centers what business is that of the government and yet they want to pour heavy duty regulation and those who are behind it by the way are the abortion clinics who are losing money to the pregnancy care centers that's what's going on here you know you lift the veil and you see what's really happening these pregnancy care clinics that are that are supported by nonprofits, that are supported by churches that are supported by individuals and local businesses And yet, the government wants to come in and restrict that support and make it difficult. And if these bills were to pass, most of the pregnancy care clinics in Washington State would have difficulty functioning at all. They'd probably be driven out of business. And yet, here are some statistics for you. January 25th, 2011. This is from the Pro-Abortion Rights Guttmacher Institute. So this is from the abortion side. These are their statistics. Nearly 50 million babies have been aborted since Roe v. Wade in 1973. 50 million. To get some kind of sense of that, right now Israel has a population of 7 million. 50 million. This absolutely shocked me. By the age of 45, 35% of American women will have had an abortion. Over a third. It's astounding. 93% occur for social reasons. Social reasons. That is an unwanted child or an inconvenient pregnancy. 93%. I mention all that just to ask you this question. Are you ready to go up? I mean, are you just tired of this world? And the things that go on around us and the darkness and the drawing away from all things godly 
Are you ready to ascend out of the darkness? Well, that's the reason for Psalm 120. It is to prepare the heart to say, I don't want this anymore, I want that. I am ready to go up. And so the Jewish people would begin their journey to Jerusalem with Psalm 120. A reminder that everything else is not what it is in Jerusalem. Everything else is not what it is at the temple where the glory of God resides. That's the place to be, to go up. This is a psalm of ascent, recognizing where we've come from and preparing us to go up. For Israel, they sang it as they came away from their dark places up to Jerusalem. For you and me, we can sing this song as we prepare our hearts to ascend. As we prepare, as we are ready, we keep an eye on the world, not to be depressed or bummed out, and that's not my point tonight. But we keep our eyes on what's going on around us, the reality and the darkness, so that we are all the more ready for Jesus to say, Come up here! And we will go. And when He shouts those three words, I can't wait. In fact, I hope that I'm on tiptoes when He says it. Just ready for Him to call us home. But here's the real beauty of Psalm 120. Psalm 120 is not a longing prayer. It is an answered prayer. Look at verse 1 again. In my trouble I cried to the Lord and He answered me. So all that we just read is past tense. The psalmist is saying it's behind me now. He heard my cry. He heard my prayer. And I'm going up. And now the steps of his mind and his spirit are set to go up to the house of the Lord. Psalm 121 verse 1. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? Now let me square something here with you all. We're not talking about the Cascades or the Olympics or the Sierras or some big beautiful mountain range. We're also not talking about the mountains of Jerusalem, Moriah, Scopus, Zion, Mount Olivet. We're not talking about those either. The mountains here, Israel, we're not to those mountains yet. We're headed to Jerusalem in these Psalms, but we haven't arrived there yet. We're not looking at those mountains yet. Most of Israel is a basin. Most of Israel is lowland, surrounded by these higher hills, surrounded by the mountains of Moab, you know, to one side, and again the sea to the other, and these hills throughout Israel. But it's, it's mostly the lower region. And what is being described here with this second psalm is, is someone standing there, and they're looking up at the mountains around them, and they're intimidating. And they're huge. I lift my eyes up, he says, to the mountains. From where shall my help come from? The mountains represented two things there in Israel, gang. The height of of intimidation where where the enemies resided and the high places that took you away from the Lord. The high places of pagan sacrifice and worship and idolatry was in the mountains. And the pagan enemies were in the mountains. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? So the second psalm of ascent opens with a question in the midst of intimidation. Where's my help come from? And then he answers himself, Oh, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. They may hide out in those mountains. They may sacrifice to their pagan gods in those mountains. They may be holed up in them thar hills. But my God made those mountains. My God created those hills. He's bigger than all of that. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. He will not allow your foot to slip. Verse 3. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber 
nor sleep. He's not going to drift off no matter how boring your life may be from time to time. (laughs) You don't bore the Lord in the least. You just don't. He doesn't fall asleep keeping an eye on you. He's not tired from other work somewhere else such that he nods off. Oh, I'm sorry, where were you? Okay, I'm here. No. You know, I read verses like 3 and 4. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He will not allow your foot to slip. And I was asking myself this week, why do I ever freak out? Why do I ever, ever get distressed? Why do I waste one second of the day in worry when the Word tells me He will not allow your foot to slip? He keeps me. He's got charge of me. His eye is on me. He's wide awake with care and compassion. Why do I worry? Why do any of us? Boy, even when I am so worn out from worry that I fall asleep, He doesn't sleep. He's looking out for me. And the psalmist says in three ways. First off, He keeps me against defeat. Verse 5, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. Now that word shade can also be translated, it's cell, T-S-E-L, in the Hebrew cell, and it can be translated shadow or shade, but it also means protection. The Lord is your protection. He's your shield. It's as though He's standing beside me and He shades my right hand because in His strength and His greatness, I am under the shadow of His wing. I am under His protection. What's also interesting about this is that in Bible times especially, and any time where there was war where they used spears and shields, the spear was always held in the right hand, if you were right-handed, the shield in the left. So that being the case, what is the most vulnerable place on your body? It's on your right side. You got a shield to your left and you got that spear to throw, but you're vulnerable over here. And the psalmist says, that's right where his shield is. In the place of your vulnerability, he's got you covered. In the place of your weakness, he keeps you against defeat. It doesn't mean attacks won't come, but what it means is when they do come, he's your shield and he shields your most vulnerable areas. The places where you're weak. I think there's wisdom in us inviting the Lord into our places of weakness. What do you mean? I mean confession. I mean telling the Lord, this is the area in my life that is most difficult. Talking to a brother earlier this week who had been to the men's conference down at Calvary Fellowship earlier, a week or so ago on Saturday, and heard all the conversations and the teaching, and one of the guys that taught was a former uh, porn producer they had down there talking to the guys and talking about this issue and how dangerous and how sick and twisted and how how much it just tears especially men apart so this brother was sharing this with me and and he said you know that is uh, that is my concern that's my struggle it's my it's wandering eyes not unfaithfulness to my wife I'm faithful to my wife but but mentally I just it's where I get drawn away and I said, well, that's, that's the right thing to tell me. It's the right thing to tell the Lord. That's an area of vulnerability. Invite the Lord there. Father, this is where I'm weak. This is where I sin. 
This is where my tendency my whole life has been to sin. This is my weak spot. And by the way, have you noticed that the older you get, long-term Christians, that those weak places, those vulnerabilities are still there? Those old sins that you thought you were rid of, man, I've matured in my faith. You know, I'm, I've been walking with the Lord now 40 years. I know Him well, and I'm strong, and I'm mature. And yet, that weak place when you were a teenager oftentimes is still the weak place today. How do you overcome that? You invite the Lord to be your shield in your place of vulnerability. Not in your place of strength. You've got a shield for that, you know? I'm strong over here. Lord, I need you where I'm weak. And that means confessing. That means being open with the Lord. And perhaps with a brother or sister in Christ, having some accountability in a discipling type of relationship is healthy. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. That's what the Lord does. Lord, I I have to fess up with you. I have to tell you, this is a sin area in my life. And God doesn't go, I knew it! I knew it! For crying out loud, this was your problem as a teenager! Didn't we talk about it? But no, that's not the Lord. The, the writer of Proverbs, Solomon, says, no, you get compassion. Lord, I'm still struggling here. I know, son. I know you are. I know, daughter. Let me strengthen you there. Let me be your shield. He keeps me against defeat. John says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess. Share it with the Lord. He keeps you against defeat. He also, number two, keeps me against the heat. He keeps me against the heat. Verse 6, The sun will not smite you by day. The sun will not smite you by day. Boy, it can get oppressive in Israel. Part of the reason that we go in March-April time frame, and our trip in 2012 will be March 5th, 5th through 16th, I believe, are the the dates for that. The reason why I choose that time frame is it's temperate in Israel. I've had some say, why not go in the summer when more people can go? You'd hate it. You'd be miserable, Northwesterners. It would be a tough time. Now people do, and perhaps one day we will, but the heat is oppressive in Judea in the summertime. And the psalmist recognizes that. You know, the hot, oppressive deserts of Judea, or the Negev, or even places like En Gedi, the psalmist is writing, he protects me against the heat. When it gets hot, when the enemy turns up the heat, when I'm facing fiery ordeals, he protects me. He keeps me against the heat. 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Did you notice, by the way, Peter uses a pun there and no one makes fun of him for using puns. He says, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ. You're in a fiery ordeal and there's a degree and the degrees are going up. To the degree that you share in His sufferings, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Finally, He keeps my head complete. (laughs) I'll explain this. He keeps my head complete. I was trying to go with the rhyme frame there, so bear with me. He says in the latter half of verse 6, The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. What does the moon have to do with the soul? Well, it was believed in ancient times, especially, 
that if you were to sleep out on a clear, cloudless night where there was a full moon, you needed to cover up because the light of the moon could drive you crazy. We have words for that. Moonstruck. Lunatic. Lunatic. You know, you're made crazy by the moon. And it was believed that the moon caused insanity. And the psalmist knew that. And he's writing and saying, you know, he'll protect you even against the moon at night. He will keep your soul. And we know we've talked about this. The soul is the seat of intellect and reason. It's the mind. And he's going to protect your mind. In fact, it's interesting in all this, he, he protects you all the way around. You know, back in verse 5, against defeat. You know, against the defeat of your spirit. Against the heat, which is your physical body, there is protection. He keeps your head complete, the soul. Spirit, body, and soul. He is your protection. He is your, your shield and your strength. And the psalmist says here in verse 7, he'll keep your soul. He's, he's going to keep your head together. Against the madness of life, against all the insanity, walk with the Lord. He'll keep your head together. And the keeper of my soul will not let me slip. Listen to that one more time. The keeper of your soul, he says back in verse 3, will not let you slip. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that? Do you believe the keeper of your soul will not let your feet slip? If we believe it, Why do I hear so often from Christians and sometimes coming out my mouth, I'm slipping, Lord. I'm slipping. Lord, I'm afraid I'm going to fall. I'm struggling here, Lord. And His Word says He's not going to let you slip. He will not let you fall. Yeah, but but I've let go of His hand. Yeah, but He hasn't let go of yours. And I've given this illustration before of walking Naomi down that rocky path and it gets slippery there near the gate. And she thinks that she's holding on to my finger, not realizing the rest of my fingers are around her wrist. So when her feet go out from under her, she doesn't go anywhere. She's just dangling there. She can let go of my hand all she wants. I've got her. He will not let your feet slip. Jesus says in John 10:28, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now someone might say, oh, okay, so are you saying once saved, always saved? It's not about a theological position. It is about a secure position. We can argue theology all day long, but the reality is in Christ Jesus I am secure. He's got me. And I don't need to worry about slipping. He's got me. I'm kept by Him. Jude tells us that. He's able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy. So why are we afraid of stumbling? Because we keep trusting ourselves. And I know that I'm going to let me down. Better to just trust the Lord. Verse 8, The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. And going out and coming in, the, the picture there is just your comings and your goings. As you leave the house in the morning, as you come back in the evening, wherever you are, as you're wandering through your day, the Lord will be there. He will guard it. But there's something else inherent in the Hebrew language here that's interesting. What's implied is that the Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from Him. 
He will guard your going out from Him and your coming in to Him. In other words, Jesus guards you even when you wander off. Even when you think you've wandered so far from the Lord, down a weird little rabbit trail, down the wrong path, He knows exactly where you are. Even if I wander away, He's guarding my going out, my my coming in. How many here, let me just ask you this, how many have ever wandered off from your faith? Okay, good. We don't have any liars here tonight. Hey, that's a reality. We've all done it. We've all wandered from our faith. Guess what? He was guarding you at that time. That's why you're here tonight. He never lost sight of you. He's still keeping watch of you. He still is keeping guard over you. I was talking with, I won't say who it was, but someone uh, just recently about tithing and offering, and and they were saying there was a time back in in their younger years where they didn't give at all, and they were going to church, but they sure, sure weren't living it, and yet they were amazed looking back at how God had always, always provided for them, even up to present day, where they're walking far more faithfully. And I thought, you know, and this is just Rick's theology, so this is one of those for what it's worth things, and it is not biblical, it's Ricklical, okay? <laughs> I think that because God knows exactly where we all are going to be when He calls us home, that He guards us even in those days previously when we were not saved. In other words, before Les gave his life to Jesus, God knew he was going to give his life to Jesus and had him protected even prior to that day. Because the Lord is looking at the whole thing. And He knows when our faith is going to be turned on. And He knows, and by the way, this this explains a little bit of the whole predestination thing. He also knows those who will never accept them. Who will never give their lives to Him. Now He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He gives blessing to those who follow and those who don't follow receive the blessing of life in this world. And yet, there's a divine protection for those who the Lord knows are going to turn to Him. And in the same way, there is not the same protection for those who will never turn to the Lord. And only He truly knows that. Only He knows the heart. So we turn to Him. And when we turn to Him, we start to get somewhere. We start to go up again. Psalm 122. I love this psalm. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together, which is cool because it even is today. You see, it's this compact, very cool city to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. And that's describing going up to praise Him for those feasts and those festivals that they were required to go to. For there were thrones, or their thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. I'll pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. This psalm is now written by the sweet psalmist of Israel. We know this one is David. We don't know about several of the others, but a couple of these psalms of ascent at least. We know her by David. One is going to be by Solomon. But David writes this, and it's a marvelous psalm. And again, one of my favorites, and I've read it many, many times, and we're going to wait till Sunday to really delve into it. We're going to come back to it, because I want to spend more time on it than we can tonight. 
but I do want to ask this question. Are you glad when they say, let's go up to the house of the Lord? Does it, does it thrill your heart as you look at the clock, perhaps on Wednesday night, and it's 5 o'clock, and you think, almost time. We're going. When someone says, hey, are you going to be there Sunday? Yeah, I'm going to be. Are you glad? I'm glad. I'm glad we're going up to the house of the Lord spiritually and physically, Jerusalem, in a year, Lord willing. I'm, I'm starting to get pumped again. You're going to start hearing it. Rachel, it's going to be in every single teaching for the next year I'm going to be mentioning this trip. Because I'm glad. And by the way, I gladly invite you all to go. Start thinking about it. We're going to have a meeting on February 13th after both services that Sunday morning. Brief meetings where I'm going to give out the information and packets and, and what you need to start thinking about and planning to go to Israel in March of 2012. So I'm excited about that. Now, going on. The people are still going up. They're still singing the songs. They're rejoicing in the Lord. But watch now where their eyes go as they're ascending Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes. O you who are enthroned in the heavens, behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hands of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until He is gracious to us. Man, it just hit me. And in that song that we sang earlier, just to be with you, See, that's what the excitement was about going up to Jerusalem for the festivals. To be more in the presence of the Lord than they could be any other time during the year. Especially at that time. Now you don't have to go to church to be in the presence of the Lord. You have His presence if you are in the Holy Spirit. If you're in Jesus, His Spirit resides with you. Anywhere you are, He's there. But not for the people of Israel. They had to locationally go to where He was. And as they went up, it wasn't about the temple. Glorious, beautiful, but it wasn't the temple. And it wasn't the festival itself, exciting and, and fun and, and curious and interesting. And it wasn't seeing, seeing, you know, Uncle Joseph and Aunt Zipporah. It was about the Lord. Or was supposed to be anyway. Our eyes are to the Lord, not to the temple, not to Jerusalem itself, but to the Lord. Because Jerusalem represented the location where they would find the Lord to be. And as we journey, this, uh, it, where are your eyes? Where are your eyes as you are going along, as you are slowly ascending in the Lord in this life? The eyes of the faithful servant are always looking to the Master. The eyes of the faithful servant are always looking for the return of the Master. He says, our eyes look to the Lord our God until He is gracious to us. Until. There's something the psalmist is waiting for here. He's looking to the Lord. He's waiting on the Lord. He's looking there until this moment of grace happens. Hey, that's us. I am looking for the return of my Master until He returns and is gracious to me. In other words, calls me up. In that moment of astounding grace, when all that we hoped for and all we had faith in becomes instant reality, His grace poured out and we're there. And it's going to be marvelous. Our eyes look to the Lord until He's gracious to this. These are not, these are not the eyes of the lazy or the kicked back or the casual or the closed off. These are the eyes of the servant. And note that. The eyes of the servant. The servant, how do you define a servant? Well, it's one who is serving. I know, I have a flair for the obvious. 
The servant of the Lord is the one who is serving the Lord, not the one who is warming the chair at church. Not the one who has the Christian t-shirt or the bumper sticker. The servant of the Lord is serving the Lord. And there's this wonderful dynamic here that looking for the coming of Jesus motivates and generates a heart to serve here and now. A few years ago, a young man asked me the question, you know, you talk about Jesus' return a lot. How does that motivate service? How does it not? I mean, to me, the greatest motivation to serve the Lord is knowing He's coming and I want Him to catch me in the act of serving, not sitting. You know, of, of being about the business of the kingdom. Not so that it impresses Him, but so that He's proud of me. I don't know if I can even imagine a more wonderful thing than Jesus looking at me and saying, well done. Good job. I I am so proud of you, son. That's what I'm waiting to hear. That's what I long to hear. Jesus says in Matthew 24, I know we've read this many times, we're going to read it many more. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give him their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves, and eat and drink with drunkards, The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know. And there's the contrast between truly the servant who, as the psalmist says, the eyes of the servant look to the hand of their master. That servant is the faithful and sensible servant. But the wicked servant is the one who's not looking. In fact, the wicked servant really doesn't want the master to return at all. Why? Because he'll be busted. Because the master will come back and discover him not doing what he knows that he was called to do. The faithful servant knows that the master comes with grace. The wicked servant fears that the master is coming with discipline and punishment. In 2 Timothy 4.8, Paul says, But in the future it's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. That is key. The crown of righteousness will be given to everyone who loved His appearing. That is the slave whose eyes are on the Master's coming. The slave who's keeping watch. The faithful servant loves the appearing of Jesus Christ. Loves to talk about it. I saw Spencer's eyes light up. Just a few minutes ago. You didn't even mean for it to happen, but it did. You know, we're talking about the Lord and going up and how wonderful it's going to be when we go up. And out of the corner of my eye, I saw Him just start to grin. You see, that's, that's loving His appearing. He's not the only one. I saw several of you. I just, you know I like to pick on Him. Only the servants of the Lord are truly keeping watch. They're the ones saying, when is He coming? They're the ones saying, I want the household to be in in tip-top shape. I want the servants fed and the hearts prepared and people watchful. And I want to have an impact on all of that. So when he comes, I can say, yeah, I've been busy in your house, Lord. I I think about Jackie on Sunday mornings. You know, Jackie Shorthouse gets here early. And and while the worship team is warming up and Tom's up here on the base, she's back there in the back preparing communion and getting the cups and the juice and all that. And you notice there's always muffins back there. She's always, every week, make sure she gets over to Costco or wherever, and there are muffins and croissants back there to have free of charge 
And I'm keeping track. I'm going to charge all of you for what you eat later. But she's not. And she's getting all this stuff and she's, she's putting it back there. And I sent her an email this week because we were thinking of just looking at some expenses. And, and I'm thinking, boy, you know, is that something we ought to do or should we just back it off? You know, coffee, tea, and cider if you're lucky. And so I asked her opinion. I said, Jackie, what do you think about this? And she sent an email back. I just love what she said. She said, first of all, the expense is not that big. And she said, you know, people really do enjoy having something to nibble on when they come in the door. And, and she said, besides, her words, not mine, she said, besides, I like to have the Lord's house prepared when people arrive. That is the servant. That's the heart of the servant. That's the servant whose eyes are on the master. That his house might be prepared when he returns. Our eyes look to the Lord, our God, until He is gracious to us. Verse 3, Be gracious to us, O Lord. Be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. Literally, we are overflowing with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. What's that all about? (laughs) Well, for the Jewish person, contempt has been their status in the world. They are always held in contempt. Anti-Semitism is just contemptuous. Anti-Semitism, I've shared before, is simply satanic. That's why there's so much evil and anger. That's the other reason I was going to get to about Israel. Why do people hate the Jews? Because Satan hates the Jews. And he wants them wiped out. Why? Because God chose them. And so there's a satanic element here to this whole idea of anti-Semitism. But note this, he tells us who the contemptuous are. Who those are who hold him in contempt. He's just a servant. He's longing for the return of the Master. His eyes are to the Lord. And for that, he's held in contempt. Who by? By those who are at ease and by the proud. And it actually rhymes in the Hebrew. Those who are at ease are the Sha'anan and the proud are the Ga'ayon. The Sha'anan and the Ga'ayon. The Sha'anan, that means the arrogant. And the Ga'ayon are those who rise up. The arrogant who rise up. Hold those in contempt who are looking for the return of the Lord. And I see such amazing application here. Those who rise up in power and in arrogance and positions of power have always held humble believers in contempt. Oh, you pitiable Christians. Oh, you pregnancy care clinic operators. You know, you need us in the positions of power to tell you what you have to do. And there is a contempt there. And there's a truth here, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to say this, but I think I will. The truth is, the more you look for and long for Jesus' return, the more you will be held in contempt by those who do not want Him to come. Even among Christians. Well, there are Christians who don't want to think about the second coming. You know, I'm good going to church and and doing my little legalistic thing, but I don't want to consider... Jesus coming because that's going to change everything and I'm not ready for that and then their little friend Christian over here is saying hey we have this great study about the harpazo being caught up the rapture of the church and Jesus coming you know that's imminent and the person will say oh come on you know what that's just that's some of that weird that's some of that Calvary Chapel theology is what that is Chuck Smith he's a wacko you know out there preaching stuff that the Bible actually says. I mean, who does he think he is? And so there are, there are people there who, who become contemptuous 
saying, how dare you rock the boat? In fact, who do you think you are to be caught up right before there's hell on earth? How weird is that? Oh, you goody two-shoes. Who do we think we are that we're going to get caught up and the rest of the world not? I'll tell you who we are. We are those who are saved by grace. We're saved by grace. I'm not going up because I'm better than somebody else. I'm going up because He is, and I know that, and I've cried out to Him. And I trust Him, which is why the psalmist says, Be gracious to us. Be gracious to us. Hey, they may hold me in contempt for keeping my eyes on the Master, but Lord, would You just be gracious to me? Because when You call, I want to go. And when You come, I want to be ready. I look for His return. Be gracious to us. Kyle and Delich call this line here, Be gracious to us, O Lord. They call it the Kyrie eleison of this psalm. Perhaps you know the phrase, Kyrie eleison. It means, Lord have mercy. It was an ancient Christian prayer. Kyrie eleison. There's also a great hit song by Mr. Mr. back in 1985. I went back and YouTubed it just this last week. That's a great song. Kyrie eleison down the road that I must travel. Anyway, maybe we'll do that sometime for worship. Great song. But it's all about the worship of the Lord. Lord have mercy down the road that I must travel. By the way, Richard Page, who was one of the writers of that song in the band Mr. Mr., is a Christian. Kind of cool. Kyrie eleison. Lord have mercy. If not for the mercy of the Lord, if not for the grace of the Lord, there would be no catching up. There would be no one going home. We would all go through tribulation. But we have not been destined for wrath, but for salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. So look for the return. Because you know what? When your master comes back, you know who he is. He is gracious and he is merciful and his reward is with him as we talked about on Sunday. So look for his return. Now in Psalm 124, we're still going up. Still ascending. These psalms are telling a story. This is an ongoing narrative for those who are ascending. And for the Jewish singer, Jerusalem now is in sight. With Psalm 124, you see it. It's there ahead of us. And he says... Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the waters would have engulfed us. The stream would have swept over our soul. Then the raging waters would have swept over our soul. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us to be torn by their teeth. Our soul has escaped as a bird. What does a bird do? He flies. Just as the church will fly to meet Jesus in the clouds. Our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Oh, help us. Or our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is the psalm of the would have. If not for the Lord, our lives would have been in terrible shape. If not for the Lord, we would have had the Lord not seen us through. And what a great song for Israel to sing. Had it not been for the Lord, we would have perished in 586 B.C. when Babylon conquered Israel. Had it not been for the Lord, had it not been for the Lord, we would have been toast in A.D. 70 when Rome came in and slaughtered our people and decimated the city. Had it not been for the Lord. 
and all throughout, had it not been for the Lord, Hitler would have been victorious. And all the world's Jewish population would have been destroyed had it not been for the Lord who has had His eye on Israel from the moment He made covenant with Abraham. And Jesus says in Matthew 24-34, famous verse, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, you know, and I've taught this and I believe it, that the generation He's talking about will be, is our generation, I think. The generation that saw Israel bud like a fig tree, as Jesus describes in Matthew 24. And Israel budded in 1948. And our generation has seen that. And I think, prophetically, that's what Jesus was talking about. I could be wrong, but that's the way I see it and read it and understand it. However, there's another side to this that Jesus could just as easily have been talking about preserving Israel itself when He says this generation, this genus, this people group will not pass away because I'm going to keep them. Had it not been for the Lord, Israel would have passed away. And this psalm reminds me that only the Lord can see me through. And you all have been through different challenges, struggles in your life. And you're here tonight because you recognize that only the Lord can see you through. As bad as life can get. And I need to ask you to be in prayer for the Jeter family. Uh, Some of you know them. Some of you may not be aware. Um, The Jeters... Is it Ryan? I think it's Ryan is the father's name. Hmm? Russ? Russ. That's right. Russ Jeter uh, was flying into Puget Sound and with a float plane. His six-year-old son, uh, Jacob, was in the plane and they hit the water and the plane flipped. And as it went down, uh, Jacob was killed. And Russ was pulled out by someone who saw it, but the water was so cold they literally could not even get in there long enough. He was underwater apparently for 40 minutes. And when they finally got him out, they, they tried to save him, but they couldn't. And I, I thought about them. I've thought about them a lot this week. And I can't imagine being a father flying the plane that my six-year-old son died in. I, I can't imagine. How do, you, how do you face something like that in this world? And the only way I can come up with is with God. If not for the Lord, there is no way you could walk through that kind of a valley of the shadow of death. And I ask you to pray for this family. I, it, you know, I'm, I'm very impressed. CTK, Christ the King, and Anacortes is providing meals every day for the family. There are several families at Christ the King who, are, who actually were already friends with the Jeters, know them very well, and who are camping out over there and are with them. And I don't know where their faith is or what faith they have, but I know they're in the midst right now of this, of this horrible tragedy. But the outpouring of, of support from Christians has got to be having a, a dramatic impact. Hey, Jacob's okay. He's with the Lord, this little boy. And the upside is that he will never face sorrow. He will never face heartache. He will never face sin. He will never face discouragement or pain or any of the problems that, that we have to face as we go through life. God has spared him by His grace from all of that. But pray for the family. The Lord alone can see through such tragedy and such heartache. Psalm 124, if not for the Lord. Psalm 125. We'll end with this psalm tonight. Um, Come back to the rest next week. 
But remember that we started out our journey in the basin. You know, in the mountains, intimidating, standing up around us. Psalm 121, verse 1, I will lift my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come from? Where does the help come from? And he says, my help comes from the Lord. But now, now we see the mountains of the Lord in Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. And I remind you of that verse we started with, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Beautiful in elevation. Now the psalmist, he sees Mount Zion, there it is, and he realizes something as he sees the mountains there that surround Jerusalem as he's going up. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forever. Now why do we ever get shaky? And why are Christians ever moved? I'll tell you when we're moved, it's when we're not trusting in the Lord. But when we're trusting in the Lord, we are like Mount Zion, immovable. We're there. Mount Zion that's been there since the beginning, since creation, and is still there today. And one of the marvelous things about traveling in Israel is seeing those places that we read about. Seeing those places that, wow, this was here 3,500 years ago. And it's still here. And Jerusalem is like that with those mountains surrounding it and it's that picture of of strength and security and faith. Gang faith is trusting in, it's resting in, it's nestled in the Lord. Active belief, it's it's not trusting in a belief system, but it's in trusting in the Savior. And the further we ascend in Christ, the more clear the mountainous faithfulness of the Lord. Verse 3, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest upon the land of the righteous, so that the righteous will not put forth their hands to do wrong. Check that out. The righteous will not do wrong. But I thought none was righteous. No, not one. Exactly. Until Jesus came. But now in Jesus Christ, you are righteous. And therefore... If righteous, the righteous will not put forth their hands to do wrong. The scepter of the wicked has no power, no sway, no rule over us. We're not bound to that anymore. We are bound to the Spirit of Jesus Christ, in whom there is now no condemnation, Paul writes, for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. In Romans chapter 6, he says, Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Don't you know that if you've died to sin, you don't live in it any longer? And that's what the psalmist is saying here. The righteous will not put forth their hands to do wrong. If you are right in Jesus Christ, you have, check this out, with the Holy Spirit, you and I have the ability to do no wrong. So why do we? Well, because we forget. Because there is still something at war within my members. But the Holy Spirit, gang, empowers us to be sinless. But Rick, I've heard you say we're not, we're, we are sinless, or sinful. We won't be sinless until Jesus comes. Well, you're right. Because we're human beings and we're carnal and because we don't truly believe this. And because we haven't fully grasped what it means to be righteous in Christ Jesus. But the Bible's clear. The righteous will not put forth their hands to do wrong. 
And Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. In other words, whatever tempts you right now, or perhaps whatever judgment you may be feeling, or, or wrongful unfairness you may, feel, may be feeling, it's not going to last... God has given you righteous endurance. Two words that go well together. Kind of like chocolate and peanut butter. Righteous endurance. Righteous endurance. What what Paul's saying in the no temptation verse, we've heard many, many times, that God will provide a way of escape so you'll be able to endure the temptation. Hey, the temptation is going to come, but you have righteous endurance. Which means that no matter how tough the temptation is, it's not going to last. And that would be good for us to realize. This temptation that's before me now, that is drawing me away, is not going to last. And God has given me righteous endurance. And so my heart cries out, even in confession, Lord, help me bear up against this temptation. Help me stand against it. It's not going to last. Have you ever heard of plank time? Any physicists in here? Here at a Planck time, Max Planck was a brilliant uh, physicist. He's the founder, founder they believe, of quantum theory. Okay, so this is one of these big thinkers. One of these guys who starts talking, and, and I just go, what? I'm going to go watch SpongeBob because I don't know what you're talking about, you know. Brilliant man. Check this out. Max Planck, he, he proposed what ended up being called Planck time. It's the smallest unit of time yet explained by physics. This unit of time, Planck time, is the tiniest measurement that could ever be measured by man, and it's equal to 10 to the negative 43 seconds. I have no idea what that means. It's very, very small. Okay? What it means, as of May 2010, they've been trying to measure time in its smallest increments. Well, May of this last year, the smallest time interval actually measured was 12 attoseconds. 12 attoseconds, which is 12 times 10 to the negative 18th power seconds. Okay? I'm sure you understand this, but the rest of us don't. Here's what that means. 12 attoseconds, measure, the smallest increment of measured time, is actually 1,024 times larger than Planck time. That's how minuscule plank time is. What are you saying this for, Rick? I'm trying to make a point. And that's that God will not make you endure even plank time longer than you are able. He's not going to force you to bear up under some kind of pressure that He has not prepared you with righteous endurance to handle. I was going to say, He won't take you one second beyond what you can endure, but that's too long. He will not take you plank time beyond what you can endure. Because He has prepared you and He knows, you know, it's like God has His hand on the pressure valve and on the heat valve and He knows right exactly when to shut it off because it's too much. He knows what you can take. He knows what I can take. And so He won't push us beyond that. We think we're being pushed beyond that. We're not. We have righteous endurance in Christ Jesus. And we probably can take a lot more than we realize. And the Father knows what we can handle. The Bible describes the tribulation 
as exactly seven years long. Why seven years? Well, because that's the exact amount of time the Lord knows His people can bear it. Where do you get that? Matthew 24:22. Jesus says, Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. God's wrath is ready to go far longer than seven years. This earth deserves more than seven years of wrath. And God could go on probably for millennium pouring out righteous, deserved anger on this planet. But He's not going to do it. Seven years. Why? Because that's as far as the elect can go. And for the sake of the elect, He's going to cut it off. Who are the elect? Israel. It's Israel. The church is referred to as the elect as well. But in this case, and in this context of Matthew 24, it's Israel. And for Israel's sake... At the end of seven years, God cuts it off and it's over. And Jesus returns. Because He knows how far we can handle. He knows what we can endure. And you may be in the furnace right now. And perhaps there's something in your life that has you just feeling like, I don't, I, I don't know if I can bear it one more day. I don't even know if I can bear plank time. And the Lord is saying, I know exactly how much you can handle. And I'm not going to take you beyond that point. But until you reach that point, I have given you righteous endurance. You can bear up. Verse 4. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But for those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead them away with the doers of iniquity. Again, who are these good in verse 4? Who are the upright? Who meets that criteria? Verse 1 tells us, those who trust in the Lord. Because your goodness or righteousness is not self-generated, it is God-generated. So as we trust in the Lord, we fall into that category of the good and the righteous, who the Lord does good to. And verse 5 ends, peace be upon Israel. That's the kingdom promise of God to the Jewish people, peace. What they long for, is what He has promised. Ezekiel 37, verse 26, He says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set My sanctuary in their midst forever. God's covenant of peace. Peace be upon Israel. And Jesus says to you and He says to me, My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled. Don't let it be fearful. You know what we've heard in these opening psalms of the Songs of Ascent is how to go up. How to endure. How to walk in peace and in joy and in strength and in endurance. Eyes to the Lord. Eyes to the Lord. Songs of going up. And we are going up. And again I say, may the Lord find us on tiptoes when He calls. Let's pray. God, bless Your Word in our hearts tonight. Lord, bless us with righteous endurance. Again, not a righteousness that we somehow drum up, but the righteousness that You give us through Jesus. The righteousness, Jesus, that Your precious and perfect blood bought on the cross of Calvary. We pray as we go up, as we ascend, as we, as we go by degree, step by step, day by day, into Your presence. Father, strengthen us as we look to You. 
And we pray that you might find us all as your servants, caring for your household with watchful eyes. In Jesus' name, amen.